Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The investigation was led by Chief Inspector Drew of the CID, who had overseen the murders of French Fifi, Marie Cotton, Dutch Leia and Red Max, and would confirm this is a case of murder. As before, there was no struggle, robbery or assault. With a timeline of events as clear as the day itself, the evidence as irrefutable as dust, and an embarrassment of eyewitnesses who had seen and spoken to her killer face-to-face from just a few inches away. There was no mystery as to who had murdered her. A composite description was compiled by the witnesses. He was aged 24 to 30, 5 foot 3 to 5 foot 4, Thin to medium build, a roundish pasty face, a ruddy complexion, blue eyes, brown brushback hair, a dark brownish scruffy suit, and no hat. That same man was seen with the victim at the Adam and Eve pub, at Seaton Place Market, and then at 4pm. Both were seen by the tenants of the building, entering her second floor flat at 306 Euston Road. Dr. Alexander Burney confirmed by in-situ examination that her time of death was 4pm to 5pm. Eva and Kaufman Schladver, living one floor above, saw that same man from their window walk into Bath Road and into Euston Road at roughly 5.30pm. And no one was seen to enter or exit her room until at 6pm, as established by the scent factory whistle, when they extinguished the fire and found Marie. With the police report stating, there is no doubt that the murderer was a chance pickup in a public house. The evidence was irrefutable. Her killer was a man she trusted, having held his hand on the walk back 
accepted a kiss in public and let him into her flat for sex when it could have occurred in any of the nearby back alleys. Inside, they sang and clapped to the music, as heard by Eva. They drank four bottles of stout, two of reeds and two of Guinness, which were marked with that day's date and the pub's address. And then at the table, they both enjoyed a light meal, with the man opening the salmon tin with a can opener. Sex followed as she willingly removed her hat, bra and knickers, but not her dress. She lay on the bed, her back on the sheets, her head on the pillow, and with no signs of a struggle, no cuts, no internal bruising, and no fingernails broken. Consensual vaginal sex is believed to have taken place. Only this time, something would change. With a fist to the face, a lack of struggle suggested she'd been knocked out. With frothy mucus in her airway and bruising about her neck, she was manually strangled at first, but then with a ligature later taken by the killer it is unknown if it was knotted or if he held it tight until her life had ebbed away. The police would state, we failed to find anything in the nature of a ligature. With Marie not wearing any stockings, either he had taken it as a souvenir, kept it as it belonged to him, or it was destroyed in a short, ferocious fire, which blackened the sink, burnt the curtain, and turned the rags within to cinders. With no money in her purse, it's possible that this trusted punter didn't need to pay for the sex first. But with the witnesses stating, he had no more than half a crown in his hand. What was his plan? His motive was a mystery. But given enough time, his identity would not. Although unknown to pub locals and West End coppers, with his fingerprints on the can opener, the bottles, the salmon tin and her handbag, the police would manually search every fingerprint of every criminal with a history of assaulting women or prostitutes who matched that man's description. It was an almost impossible task, made simpler as he had left a few clues. Openly chatting in the pub to two strangers, Frederick Dobson and George Bakewell. Marie's killer had shared details about his life. In coordination with the Durham police, they searched for a short, thinly built, mid-twenties man 
with a round pasty face who was born or raised in Newcastle. But as he mentioned nowhere specific, their list was too long. The same was said of every coal mine they checked in both Wales and the Northeast. A more specific lead was that he was once a boxer. His last fight was with a man named Maguire, who had ruined him. But having interviewed over a thousand boxers, working with the British Boxing Board, the Amateur Boxing Association, and having posted an article in Boxing Magazine, no one could recall Maguire or his opponent. Having said he was unemployed, the police checked the details of every man who had recently signed on at the Labour Exchange. Having said he was homeless, they searched every lodging house, hotel and casual ward in London and Newcastle. And having said that he'd been sacked that morning from the Central Hotel in Marleybone for upsetting a milk churn, they questioned the hotel staff, the agency and the Ministry of Work, but came up with no one. The police placed informants in public areas. Witnesses compared photographs of possible suspects at the records office. And as they had done with Fifi, Marie and Leia, they requested that every police division in the country compile a list of men with convictions for assaulting women who matched that description. Every suspect was questioned and investigated but with solid alibis, they were all released. They had evidence, fingerprints and eyewitnesses. And yet, even after weeks of dogged investigation, with every avenue of suspicion examined and any possible suspect scrutinised, the case had begun to stall. The police report states, The inquiry has been aggravating. For whilst we have witnesses together with fingerprints to support a conviction, we have no prisoner. We have many witnesses capable of identifying him, but up to the moment, he is unknown. However, no effort is being spared to bring this to a successful termination and DCI Drew and his officers are in no way disheartened. I am hoping for a little good fortune to come their way, which has been conspicuously absent so far. Once again, a strangler had vanished into thin air. Only he wasn't a criminal mastermind or a crazed sadistic genius. He was just an ordinary man, living in a population of 47 million people, in an era where the best resource the police had was a card index. For him, it wasn't difficult to disappear when the police didn't know who he was. 
His name was Norman Stevenson. Born on the 10th of March, 1913. 300 miles north of London, in the northeast city of Newcastle, Norman was always an undersized boy, often bullied for being small, and whose weedy frame, ruddy cheeks, and pale face contrasted starkly with his dark brushback hair. It always made him look sickly and weak. But maybe that's why he lied about being a miner a boxer, and why he regularly visited prostitutes. As deep down, he was just a little boy who wanted to be seen as a man. Little is known about his upbringing, just a small walk from Castle Lees's Moor and Fenham Barracks. But being jolly and chatty to all, he blended in because he didn't stick out. Educated at St Andrew's Council School, age 14, he left being described as educated but not smart. And being too small for heavy labour, his first job in 1927 was as an errand boy for a picture framer. But all that changed when a little mistake left him scarred for life. On the 14th of September 1927, Norman's favourite football team, Newcastle FC, were playing against Derby County at St James's Park. Being too poor to buy a ticket, this little whippersnapper had tried to sneak in by shimmying up the six-foot-high railings when he slipped. With two iron spikes impaled through his stomach, all he could do was hang there, in pain, as blood ran from his midriff down to his feet and his face. Hospitalised for three weeks, he would be plagued with bouts of sickness and unemployment for life. After his accident, his work record became sporadic. In 1928, he was a confectioner's van boy, but quit in 1930 owing to stomach pains. In early 1931, he was off sick, but worked for nine months erecting a concrete garage in Newcastle. And in April 1932, he worked at Park Royal Training in West London. But owing to sickness, he returned to Newcastle, where he engaged in casual work and petty crime to fund his habitual drinking and sex with prostitutes. Norman Stevenson had ten convictions, mostly for minor offences. On the 27th of February 1931 and the 8th of February 1932 in Gateshead, he was charged with acting suspiciously. 11th of January 1933, he did six months in prison for stealing cigarettes. 22nd of January 1934, at Newcastle, 
he was fined for stealing two tins of petrol. And on the 14th of May 1934, he did three months hard labour for stealing women's clothes. Upon his release, in February 1935, he moved to London. And as may have been misheard, or possibly it was a little white lie to sound tough, for six months he was a boiler house labourer at the Central Hotel on the Marleybone Road. Only he wasn't sacked for upsetting a milk churn, but left owing to ill health. On the 9th of October 1935, at Marleybone Police Court, he was sentenced to two months hard labour for stealing from a gas meter. On the 16th of June 1936, back in Newcastle, he served nine months for shop-breaking and again for stealing from a gas meter. And on the 31st of May 1937, in Willesden, West London, he would serve another three months hard labour at Wandsworth Prison for stealing 12 shillings again from a gas meter. As a weak and sickly boy, little Norman Stevenson didn't fit the profile of a murderer. He was a part-time labourer who suffered with stomach pains and sometimes stole clothes, stamps and cigarettes. Since the murder of French Fifi, the police had sought a man resembling his description who had a history of violence against women or prostitutes. Only Norman had no such convictions. In fact, his only violent offence, before he was charged with murder, was the assault of a policeman while drunk. Which begs the question, after almost two years of hunting for this very unlikely suspect, with three murders having gone unsolved, and no other suspects for a fourth, as they had done with Stanley King and James Allen Hall, had a baffled police force simply bagged themselves a very convenient scapegoat? And was Norman Stevenson an innocent man? Having vanished, it would take 17 months for the police to find Norman Stevenson. By which time, memories had faded, recollections were hazy, dates had shifted, and faces were lost. His alibi for the day of the murder was not to deny knowing Marie, but to deny that he was even there. On Monday the 16th of August 1937, at 7.45am, Norman Stevenson was released from Wandsworth Prison in South London, having served three months hard labour for stealing 12 shillings from a gas meter. Dressed in a shabby brown suit, but no hat, with a few coins in his pocket, he boarded the tram to Westminster. At 9am, 
He said he ate breakfast at the Salvation Army Hostel on Great Peter Street. Only there was no record of his visit. At 12 p.m., as Marie entered the Adamanive pub, he said he paid a visit to a friend near Waterloo Bridge. Only this man wasn't in. Later, he said he ate lunch in a hostel on Middlesex Street. But again, his details were not recorded there or at any of the neighbouring hostels. At roughly 1pm, he said he caught a train from Waterloo to Merston, two hours and 19 miles south of Marie's flat. At 2.30pm, around the time that it is said that he entered the pub, his sister said she gave him five shillings but I can't recall the date. And with so long having already passed, although the police had his fingerprints on a Guinness bottle as brought by the victim, marked with the pub's details, dated the day of her death, which was bagged and carried to the flat, and was later found open and drank beside her bed where her body was found. They couldn't disprove that Norman wasn't elsewhere. Just as they couldn't prove, without a shadow of a doubt, that he had strangled Marie. On the 29th of October, 1937, even with an overwhelming wealth of evidence and only one possible suspect in Marie's murder, being unaware that Norman Stevenson even existed, the inquest was concluded by the coroner, who would state, there is no doubt at all that the police have made all possible inquiries. It is clearly a case of murder, and there is only one verdict which fits these facts. That night, a foul mood enveloped the detectives, as they knew they'd done everything right. When the public pinned the blame on society's outsiders, and when a feverish press had bastardized the facts to concoct silly stories about a monster they had dubbed the Soho Strangler, the police had stayed steadfast in their belief that each victim was murdered by a man with a history of violence against women. But having investigated every possible suspect, they had failed to find him. Only they weren't wrong. Marie's murderer had a history of strangling sex workers. It was just that, until now, he had never been caught. Sixteen months after the inquest, 300 miles north in Durham, on the evening of Friday the 27th of January 1939, 
56-year-old Catherine Maud Chamberlain, left the home she shared with her husband at Douglas Terrace. Walking past St James's Park and heading to Castle Lees's Moor. It is uncertain why she was there. Some say she was meeting a pal, whereas others suggest that being the wife of a poorly paid labourer, she was earning a few extra shillings by selling sex to the soldiers stationed at the nearby Fenham barracks. With the snow falling thick and the night bitterly cold, Catherine wore a long woolen scarf to keep the chill from her neck and a set of rubber wellies as her feet churned the grass into a brown slushy mud. At 10.10pm, Catherine was seen chatting with a small man at the main gates of Lees's Park by Mabel Jackson. She described the man as about 5 foot 3, aged about 25, dark hair, ruddy complexion, round face, dressed in a dirty dark suit with a collar and a tie, but no hat. Later arrested, Norman Stevenson would make a confession with chilling similarities. He would state, I realised there was two pounds missing from my waistcoat pocket. A crime he would blame on Catherine, having been dipped in the past, by which a prostitute will either overcharge a punter or will discreetly steal their money. Although we have no evidence to prove his assertion of theft. Feeling aggrieved, a letter of one blow on the chin, he would state. But only being a little guy, although she went down against the wall on her knees. As she started to struggle, he rained down repeated blows on her face, as this terrified woman began to scream for her life. It was then that he strangled her to death. Norman would confess, I grabbed her by the throat, but being too weak to choke the life out of her, I then got hold of her scarf. Not being the kind of man who planned to murder a prostitute. As she screamed, I tied a knot in it. A granny knot, which he knew how to tie in haste, being a labourer. I had no intention of killing her, he would state. I did it to frighten her and to get my money back. Which was almost certainly a lie as in the same way the French Fifi hid her money in her left stocking, Catherine hid hers in her wellies, which he removed. At 10.15pm, a passing couple heard several screams by the ARP trench, but by the time they had raced to the barracks wall, Catherine was dead and her killer had fled.
with almost every piece of evidence eviscerated by the winter sludge. The Durham police were at a loss as to who this man was. Placing a description of the man in the papers, the press reported the facts in a factual and an unsensational way. But with only one prostitute dead, this little story would be quickly forgotten. As the Met Police had done, Durham Police had requested that all divisions across the country compile a list of men matching their description who had a history of assaulting prostitutes, especially strangulation. It was too eerie to be a coincidence, as the man last seen with French Marie was from Newcastle. With the press accurately reporting this suspect's description in all the local papers, Norman Stevenson had become spooked. Mid-afternoon, on Friday the 3rd of February 1939, just one week after Catherine's murder, Norman had tried to strangle another prostitute while drunk on Newgate Street in the heart of Newcastle city centre. In a local pub, having met Annie Cunningham Thompson, a local sex worker who he knew and liked, they headed into an alley for sex. Only nothing happened as he was too drunk. Moments later, he put his hands around my neck and tried to strangle me, and he would state. Which may have been his real motivation, as with this little boy desperate to be seen as a man, were these assaults because he couldn't get an erection. Fighting him off, Norman fled as two men came to Annie's aid. But as he ran into Westmoreland Street, being racked with anxiety. Catherine's killer gave himself up. Walking up to PC John Patterson, Norman said, I want to give myself up for murdering Mrs. Chamberlain. Since the murder, people have said queer things about my appearance and it has got on my nerves. Detained at Arthur's Hill Police Station, he was charged with assault and with murder. On Thursday the 2nd and Friday the 3rd of March 1939 at Durham Assizes, Norman Stevenson was tried for the murder of Catherine Maud Chamberlain. Pleading not guilty, his defence was, I thought she had only fainted. I didn't mean to kill her. And claiming self-defence for a knife which was never found, 
I thought she had a razor. I was in fear for my life. But with no prior history of violence, the charge was reduced to manslaughter, as the court knew they hadn't the evidence to prove any premeditation. Having retired for 45 minutes, a jury of eight men and four women found him guilty of manslaughter and allegedly flicking a little grin as he walked from the dock. He was sentenced to 10 years in Parkhurst Prison. Throughout the trial, Chief Inspector Drew had absorbed every detail about Norman Stevenson. But if he was so sure that this man had murdered French Marie, why did he convict a man called Robert Dixon? With Norman sticking to his shaky alibi, he would state, I know nothing about it. I don't know the Adam and Eve pub, and I don't know the woman. On the 2nd of May 1939, Robert Dixon was tried at the Old Bailey. As with so much coverage in the press of the murder of Catherine Chamberlain, both the prosecution and the defence felt it prudent to try Norman under an alias. Pleading not guilty to murdering Lottie Astley, alias French Marie, he would state, We were both drunk. She told me to leave and she pushed me. I pushed her back and she fell. I grabbed her scarf and I think it must have tightened. Only no one could recall her wearing a scarf as it was summer. Having retired for one and a half hours, during which time the jury had sought rulings by the judge on various points of law, they returned with a verdict of not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. With Norman Stevenson, alias Robert Dixon, sentenced to 16 years for the manslaughter of Lottie Astley and 10 years for the manslaughter of Catherine Moore Chamberlain, escaping a death sentence, he should have served at least 26 years in prison. But with both convictions set to run concurrently, he served just half. Released from Dartmoor Prison in 1955, Norman Stevenson died in 1969, professing his innocence.
almost 140 years after his killing spree. It is unknown if Jack the Ripper was ever caught. No one knows his name, or even if he even existed. As with so many theories and conspiracies, concocted by a feverish press and a public only interested in what's sensational, the facts are lost in a quagmire of lies and suspicion. More than 85 years after the Soho Strangler killings, the same could be said. As was he a man, a myth, or a monster? Since the start, the police would state, some of the newspapers have suggested that these cases of strangulation of prostitutes in 1995 and 96 are connected. We have convinced them that they are wrong. But did they think that? Or with only circumstantial evidence of a Soho serial killer? Was it quicker and legally safer to conclude one murderer solved rather than four they could never prove were connected? We know he strangled two women to death Catherine Moore Chamberlain and Lottie Asterley, as well as assaulting Annie Cunningham Thompson. But with no history of violence against prostitutes, he was never suspected of any earlier murders, as his first conviction for strangulation wasn't until 1939, three years after the murder of French Fifi. Although we have no sightings of the man who murdered French Fifi or Marie Cotton, the suspect last seen with Dutch Lair is almost identical to Norman Stevenson. Fresh complexion, clean shaven, brown brushback hair, a long black coat and no hat. As a small unassuming boy, who looked sickly and weak, was he often mistaken for harmless? Being so friendly, he would chat to strangers in a pub. The kind of punter a prostitute would wave at across a bar, and who she would invite back to her flat for a meal and sex, because she trusted him. He may not have had prior convictions for violence or sexual assault, but he regularly visited prostitutes. His earliest crimes were for acting suspiciously, and he was charged twice for stealing women's clothing. Was that entirely innocent, or does it hint at something deviant? Prior to their deaths, three of the victims were assaulted by punters, who had claimed to have been cheated out of money. To the police, Norman would admit, I have been dipped before by prostitutes in London. He also knew Soho and the West End Red Light districts. He could tie a variety of knots at speed and with no money found at any of the crime scenes, 
he knew where at least two of the prostitutes had hid their earnings. In neither the press nor the police reports is Norman ever named as a suspect in any of the Soho murders. But by comparing his work history and his prison record, there are a series of startling similarities. Sentenced to two months at Pentonville Prison, Norman was released on the 4th of November 1935, the day that Josephine Martin, alias French Fifi, was murdered. Dressed in a shabby brown suit, with no home, no job, and no money, it's likely that prison life had left him desperate for sex. On the 16th of April and the 9th of May 1936, the days when Marie Cotton and Dutch Lair were murdered, being unemployed and keeping on friends' floors, we know that he was in the West End. But by June 1936, being convicted of shop-breaking, for unknown reasons, he had fled back to Newcastle, where he felt safe. And having been sentenced to three months' hard labour, released from Wandsworth Prison on the morning of the 16th of August 1937, with no money, no job and no lodging, he got drunk in a pub. And just hours later, he murdered a prostitute known as French Marie over possibly a few shillings. It could really be as simple as that. There was no myth, no monster, and no conspiracy. He wasn't a crime boss, a sadistic gay, or even a sinister Jew. As often, the most obvious answer is usually the right one. That these women were murdered by a recently released convict who was broke and had a deadly desire for sex. So was Norman Stevenson Soho's serial strangler? Or maybe the Soho strangler was just a myth? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Christ, that took ages, although that was a longer episode. Oh, there you go, peepee poppers. How is that, peepee poppers? There you go. Oh, the final part. The final part. Eight years of research. Never been told before. And it finally been pieced together and told for the first time. And take off your little hat. There we go. Oh, were you hoping that I'd come to the end and go, it's this man, like with the, like with the Blackout Ripper. It's this man, and we know it's him and he's convicted. No. See, this is the problem. When, when people come up with bullshit and the press come up with bullshit and things like that it's just you can't it can't, it can't be pinned down the pr- police get a lot of their information from the people that's where they get their information from. people are out there police aren't made of magic they're, they're, they can't just magic up all this evidence it's kind of they rely on the people to give them information so they can go and arrest the right people but when the press are there and the press are concocting stories about a a serial strangler when the people read that they absorb that it it creates a myth and suddenly the facts are lost in as mentioned in a quagmire of lies and prejudice and suspicion and that's the problem is with this case who knows maybe if the press had done their job properly you can kind of see it with uh norman stevenson at the end you could kind of see it how they'd kind of they they didn't really they didn't really care and they didn't know anything about the Soho Strangler they didn't care they were just reporting on one sex worker who had been murdered therefore they were relatively factual but the second it became an interest something interesting and exciting and everyone was going oh it's a serial killer oh it must be exciting suddenly all the the myths start all these crazy stories and that's when you lose fact that's when you lose truth is when people start concocting stories because it sells newspapers oh so there we go so um it's never been pieced together before no one has kind of it's not in any newspapers it's not uh in any of the police files the police never at any point said he's a solo strangler but it was when i was going through the files all these pieces just started coming together so i thought let's piece together everything that i know and put it out there and say is that it is he the soho strangler it or does the soho strangler even exist we shall never know anyway welcome to extra mile cool well we'll be diving into more in in soho strangler week there's going to be lots of this i can now that we're not doing the stories anymore now we can focus on just information so uh and how am i celebrating um the end of the soho strangler by having a sore foot i think i've, I've ruined my left foot my left foot. I'm not. I'm not quite like Daniel Day Lewis, but uh, I'm close. Oh, my foot really hurts today. Um, shall I do a cup of tea? I don't know because it's 
it took me a lot longer to write this one because this this was really hard to piece everything together and get all the old pieces right. And now it's gone five o'clock. Might be too late for a cup of tea. I think I might I might just jack that. I might jack that. Jack that jack that Jackie body. Um, I just wanted to say uh, oh thank you to Dom uh, from the Soho Bites podcast. Uh, oh I just kicked the table then. That, that's not what Dom did. Thanks to Dom from the Soho Bites podcast uh, for playing the barman, the first barman when Marie goes into the pub and he goes oh I, oh I did what are you having? That was thank you to Dom. Uh, that was very kind of you. I played the other barman. Um, I just wanted to say uh, um, Jenny Miller, who listens to the show, is done. Uh, she's done uh, what she calls uh, her own London Dark History project, and it's kind of a um, a Google map of all the kind of interesting sites around London where there's loads of kind of murders and mysteries and things like that. I've put a link in the show notes, but you can go to LondonDarkTourist.com. That's LondonDarkTourist.com. Have a look. She's kind of building it as she goes along. So, you know, good work. Keep up the good work. Uh, go and have a look at that. Link in the show notes. Uh, also, Vivian got in touch with me. Vivian Holland. Uh, Vivian's uh, book, by the time this episode goes out, Vivian's book will be available. So that is uh, a book called Convicting Britain's Most Ruthless Criminals by Vivian Holland. Uh, so I'll put a link in the show notes as well. I don't I don't. I don't make any money out of this. I'm just just being a nice guy. People said, can you put this advert? Actually, most of them I said, I'll just do it anyway. But uh, yes, so uh, Convicting Britain's Most Ruthless Criminals by Vivian Holland. Link in the show notes should be available by the time this episode goes out. And of course, um, londonsdarktourist.com. So there you go. Uh, a thank you to our new Patreon supporters. So, uh, Adam James, thank you very much, Adam, uh, Phyllis, and Lenny B. So, Adam James, Phyllis, Phyllis, Phyllis. Pfft, my brain is tired today. I'm exhausted after this. I've although, do you know how I'm going to celebrate uh, at the weekend when I finished editing? I've got some got some Nigerian Guinness. Not not London Guinness because it's a little bit wet, wet and a bit little bit light. Not. Irish Guinness, which is good, but it's not the old traditional recipe. I've got Nigerian Guinness, which is traditional. Oh, it's it's a, a fuck of a lot stronger as well. So uh, I'll be treating PCAG. I will be treating myself to that at the weekend. Yeah, unless uh, uh I think Eva's probably drank it. I think she drinks by os- osmosis. I think she just touches things, and if it's got alcohol, she sucks it out with her finger. Oh, Eva, I wish you'd say one. No, I'm not going to go there. Don't go there, Michael. Um, also, a thank you, uh, uh, a mysterious listener from Denmark uh, who very kindly sent me a very kind donation uh, via the uh, Murder Mile donate button. So thank you so much. That went on uh, the Guinness and some cake as well, although I'm at, I am on a diet. Right, let's do some quiz questions. We'll dive into some extra stuff. And then we'll do the answers to the quiz questions, and then I will go and make some tea, and then I will collapse out because I'm about to, I'm about to pop. I'm knackered. I'm knackered, but that was good. That was my brain. It's a real weird weight is let off my head now, knowing that I've written the final episode of the Soho Strangler. Although I know I'll be coming back to him again. I know this. I know that like like the Blackout Ripper, it never ends. I still research in the Blackout Ripper earlier crimes at the moment, and I have a sneaking suspicion that the Soho Strangler. Well, go on the internet and try and find something about the Soho Strangler. There's nothing out there. There's nothing out there. You could you can you can look on the on the uh, news uh, articles, to, to the, uh, like British newspaper archive and things like that. There's bits in there, but. You've got to piece it all together. It's it's. This has been a labour of love for eight years because I've had to p- put 
pieces together and then you can't go into the National Archives and go, excuse me, can I have the Soho Strangler file? Because there's no such thing. It's I've If you listen to my Walk With Me episodes, which are only on Patreon, the listeners on there have, have listened to me rambling all the time about me going, oh, fuck, there's another fucking murder, and me literally going, right, I'm going to have to find this file. I'm going to have to... Do you know, it, it all started... The more I dived into it, the more there was more information. And there is no page on there that says oh uh, norman stevenson is possibly the soho strangler and these are the reasons why this is literally me having to go through thousands of pages literally thousands of pages over years and find little details and then and then cross-reference them and it's it's been a real pain and it was only in the literally the last couple of days that i i, I made the correlation between him leaving prison him leaving prison him leaving prison with no money and needing to find a prostitute only in the last couple of days that I went out because what I do is I write and then when I'm in bed at night after I finish my chores after Eva said I finish my chores uh, I sit there I go on a walk sometimes and I ponder stuff and I think about it and it's when I'm mulling over the details that all these little connections come together and suddenly I just went holy shit there's two on the day when he left prison and he was in prison for a couple of months he had no money he had nowhere to live he had no job and because he's he regularly used prostitutes like a lot a lot of prostitutes um imagine that you you use prostitutes two or three times a week and then suddenly you're in prison for three months what are you gonna do what are you gonna do so uh yeah so uh interesting so he could be the Sarah strangler but he might not be anyway let's dive into some quiz questions answers very shortly question number one everyone I really i was so tired at the end of this i i struggled to do 10 questions but i did do 10 questions whilst eating a cinnamon bun question number one what was norman's middle name question number two at what police station was the id parade held question number three what was norman's favorite football team even if you don't know football that will be an easy one to answer question number four what did norman claim he was sacked from the hotel for doing Question number five. What prison was Norman released from on the day of Marie's murder? Question number six. How much did Norman steal from the gas meter? Question number seven. What village in Surrey did Norman say he went to to visit his sister? Question number eight. What was the alias his lawyer used when Norman was tried at the Old Bailey? That was what alias was did his lawyer give to norman when he was tried at the old bailey not what alias did his lawyer have because that wouldn't make any sense would you excuse me uh, uh lawyer for the defense uh what uh, what is your name uh oh oh uh uh philip uh uh blockbuster See, it wouldn't make any sense would it uh, question number nine which detective was in charge of the murder of french fifi sorry french marie it makes no difference really because he was in charge of pretty much all of it uh, and question number 10 what kind of fish did norman and marie have for dinner so let's dive into some extra stuff um next week um don't forget we got soho strangler week so i'm going to put out little episodes these will be i'm not going to make them massive things uh they're going to be like micro episodes i'm going to aim for about 10 15 minutes of their bite size i'm going to really focus on all the kind of really relevant details um just so you can kind of get a better idea i think we're going to focus on um the panic 
is definitely going to be one. Uh, we're going to deal with kind of other prostitute killings in and around the area and why we don't know much about those. You know, they were just interesting things. Some which will help. Uh, one, one I'm looking forward to doing is how the press manipulated the people in order to change their witness testimony. So we will, I think one we're going to do is Stanley King. He gave his statement. We'll read his statement in full and then we'll read his statement after it had been in the press and he gave his second statement. It's fascinating and you can see how kind of things change. Um, so uh, the ID parade. Um, I'm not going to say where it was because that's one of the quiz questions. You see, I'm doing better at this now. Uh, it was held... Uh, uh, what detail why am i i'm making all this noise why am i making all this noise oh hang on no not the id parade i was going to dive into details about the murder scene itself that's what i wanted to do see how tired I am. my brain has gone uh, with the police report it's kind of interesting the uh, uh, police report dated the 9th of the 9th 37 to the acting chief constable it says this is a case of murder which occurred in a room in a house on the Euston Road during the afternoon of the 16th of August. The victim being a woman aged about 50. Um, at the start, they didn't know who she was because everyone, when you go back to the previous episode, um, she has all of these aliases and people didn't know who she was really. And that kind of made it difficult for the police because they had to pin down who she was exactly. And even to the point of her inquest, she's still known as Elsie Char Charlotte Tocken which is not really her name. That was her mar her married name. Elsie's not her name and Charlotte's not her name. We know it's uh, Lottie Asterley was her original name, but that's what makes it difficult. Um, so uh, the victim being a woman aged about 50 who worked for a living, but was given to drinking bouts and occasional prostitution. She lived alone in the room. There is no doubt that the murderer was a chance pickup in a public house. Close, but not quite right. Uh, and the crime was committed at the end of a drunken orgy. It's fascinating. In some elements in the press, because the police used the word drunken orgy, even though most of the press were pretty... They didn't really didn't give a shit about this case. Uh, those There were a few did saw the fact that it was a drunken orgy inverted commas and they were like oh, all over this so like oh this is fantastic we can start dispensing shit again but it's it wasn't a drunken orgy as you can see it's um they had four bottles of stout and then they had sex not exactly an orgy is it not by Eva's standards Eva, you know you know it'd be like 500 bottles of gin and uh and and me just lying in the corner covered in steam going <laughs> wondering if i'm dead or alive but either way i'm still happy um that sounded creepy um uh, it was committed at the end of a drunken orgy which went on between the two of them during the whole afternoon we have many witnesses capable of identifying him but up to the moment he is unknown uh, so that was August, September. So yeah, um, they they really, as, as you can see at the start, I really wanted to go into all the details about how what they did to kind of find who had murdered her. Kudos, I'd have in the moment. Um, as with all of the victims, you know, they didn't. They they. I know police. I know people always love to go. Oh, the police did a terrible job. They just don't care. But when you when you look at the amount of work they had to put in, like even with the boxers, they spoke to th 
over a thousand boxers. They did the same with the miners as well, because he said he was based in Wales and the northeast. They spoke to over a thousand miners as well. You know, there's a there's a lot of they they visited all of the the lodging houses and hotels and places he may have worked and kind of kind of you can see the amount of manpower they're using just to find out who she is and who he might be. Um. Uh, so as mentioned uh, Dr Alexander Baldy was the police surgeon he turned up it's not uh, Dr Charles Burney who turned up at the first three this is Alexander Baldy there's, there's two or three police surgeons working at the same time it's just coincidence that Dr Alexander Baldy uh, sorry uh, Dr Charles Burney did was the police surgeon on the first two but on I think it was Dutch Lair they had uh, I think also on there was Dr. Wilson as well, who was the other police surgeon. So there's, there's a few. It's just kind of coincidence that sometimes you just get the same one that turns up. Uh, Dr. Baldy turned up and he, he also did a lot of work on the Blackout, <coughs> Blackout Ripper case as well. Uh, he stated that the woman had died within the last two hours and he turned up at about, uh, it was 7.55 he turned up. So that puts her uh, time of death... Uh, he would say between five o'clock and six o'clock i think afterwards he said because there was no appreciable rigor mortis he put a time of death as near a kind of five o'clock uh, which makes sense because the, the the fire coming through the room and the smoke was about half past five so um uh no disorder in the room at all he said it was a very untidy room and there was a large table covered in Empty salmon and other tinned food, beer bottles, a glass, a cup, a newspaper and some books. But even though the room was messy, you can tell the difference between messy and disorderly. Um, uh, same with... Um, oh, I almost gave away his name then. The, the, uh, the, the detective who was in charge of this, he said, although the room was untidy, there was nothing to indicate that there had been a struggle. Uh, the dead woman was lying fully clothed, face up, legs apart, hanging over the side of the bed with her feet resting on the ground, feet on the floor, head on the pillow. So same position as Fifi and Dutch Leia. So a kind of at, at an, uh, is it an oblique angle? I guess it is. Uh, her hat was lying next to her. Um, there's no mention of stockings in there, which was fascinating. I went through it twice going where's her stockings where was her stockings but because it was summer she may not have been wearing stockings in exactly the same way as even though norman says that he strangled her with her scarf her silk scarf or he actually said it was a green silk scarf um no one can recall her wearing a scarf in fact th this is the annoying thing about this case the police never they never go back and check with the witnesses and say, was she wearing a, a silk scarf? But there's, there's just no mention of a, a scarf at all. There's also no mention of stockings. So I have deduced pfft, that um, she wasn't wearing stockings or a scarf. Oh, God, burpee. It's, it, it, she may, they, the police may have forgotten to put it down, but I think it's unlikely because they're pretty vociferous with all the details when they go through everything. <laughs> Oh, come on, hiccups. Um, what else? Uh, bed clothes. So she was lying on the bed, on top of the bed, but she hadn't got into the bed. Uh, what else? There were uh, abrasions to the left-hand side of the neck uh, and an abrasion on the right-hand side. So that is the uh, finger wounds of where he had strangled her. Um, one of the victims later on, uh, Annie, said she tried to. he tried to strangle her with both hands, but all of the... 
uh, evidence and all of the murders prior seems to show that he strangled them both uh, with one hand, three abrasions on the left-hand side of the neck and an abrasion on the right-hand side, which means left-handed. Uh, we, we, annoyingly, we don't know whether he was left-handed or right-handed. That, that was something else that I checked uh, through and that's not in there as well. Personally, I would have, I would have double checked that, especially being a left-hander, because less people in the country who are left-handed than right-handed. But there we go. It's not in the file. It, uh, not everything will be in the file, unfortunately, which is really annoying. Um, when the police turned up, they found no weapon at all. They said, "I failed to find anything in the nature of a ligature uh, on either the body or on the bed." Um, he found she was wearing what they would call a bust supporter, which was kind of a makeshift bra made out of tape and elastic attachments lying on the centre of the table. Um, there were other things that they thought may have been used to strangle her, but when the autopsy was done, it didn't match up. Um, it looked like it was something relatively thin. They they thought it was most likely to be a scarf or a stocking or something like that, something that had been uh, uh, tied. Um what had been burned in the sink we don't know at all um police said i noticed that there was some charred remains of uh part of it was a curtain which was being supported by a spring wire around the washstand so there was kind of around her washstand she had a curtain with a wire on it and this was kind of some prostitutes have this this is kind of not that i know um this is kind of <laughs> well i've done a lot of research into this so i do know a lot uh they, they have kind of a modesty curtain so so either she or the man himself can have kind of a, a pre-sex wash because obviously especially in that era um a lot of prostitutes kind of they like to check to make sure that the man doesn't have gonorrhea or syphilis or anything like that so so they'll have a bit of a pre a pre-check kind of upsy and a downsy uh before they go into bed and have the have the old sexy sexy there you go you're learning a lot today aren't you um the woodwork around the washstand together with some toothbrushes and the paneling had been scorched indicating there was a recent fire in the vicinity the uh, light linoleum beneath the door was also burnt um there was something else in the sink that was burnt but it was burnt to such an an extent that they couldn't tell what it was um, her handbag was found lying on an armchair con containing a few pieces of broken mirror but no money or other articles um on the interestingly on the table there was a bowl containing uh two shillings and sixpence in silver and six and a half pence in bronze but that wasn't taken neither were four keys um four beer bottles as mentioned as well as a tumbler and a cup uh, a salmon tin and some condensed milk um the general appearance of the table was that a meal had been consumed they didn't seem to buy anything in the market, so it's most likely that she already had this in advance, except the the two Guinnesses, obviously. Uh, but again, I find that interesting. Same as with French Fifi. It, if you go back to that episode, there's a lot. There's a lot that's packed into every episode, and it's going to take a lot of. If you want to go re back into the old ones, have a look because there's lots in there. There's lots of different pieces that have dotted around deliberately. So back in Fifi, Fifi had. Uh, made a pot of tea and some eggs for either herself or a man or them both the police couldn't determine when the eggs were made and when they'd been digested it didn't look as if if i remember correctly they thought she'd either eaten a plum or some tomatoes for dinner so there wasn't eggs in her system 
Uh, so it's likely that she may have made a meal for a man. So who was who was the man and why would she do that? If she was a prostitute, why would she do that unless she really knew and liked this guy? Unless, same as with French Marie, liked him enough that she would pop on the music, have some beers with him, have a bit of a giggle then go go down have sex and maybe not ask for money in advance because she trusted him you know the, this seems to be the, the the thing that made it fascinating for me is kind of they trust him enough he's a nice guy he comes across pleasant pleasant he comes into a pub he can chat to anyone you know he doesn't stand out as an evil guy he's a little bit unassuming um they will invite him over for a meal they're happy to walk down the street with him holding his hand accepting a kiss so that's that's kind of interesting as well. And then, and, but then something's happened. Something sparked him. Something that has never happened before because they know him enough to trust him. So this is what this is what makes it really interesting. What did happen? Do you know, if a prostitute doesn't like a man, she will not not pick him up. She'll just go, no, I'm not interested. As you've seen with Dutch Lair and the Greek man, she didn't like him. She said no but not here they seem to like him they seem to let him in so uh yeah there's a lot going on uh interesting unlike the other the other um murders as well with um french marie as well she sat down on the bed and she had to smoke with someone and it wasn't her husband and it wasn't uh dorothy neary uh the 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 neighbor who was in the next door flat uh next door uh lodging so we don't know who that was. We know he smoked. We know that um, uh, Norman Stevenson smoked and he drank. It's it's just it's just it's it'll probably never be solved. But that's why I wanted to piece this all together because there's a lot to cover. There's a lot of really interesting things. He was definitely in the room. His fingerprints were there. Unlike all of the other locations, we I think the likelihood is. I know I know we've tried to dispel the myth about there being um uh, a conspiracy and you know the police were in on it and all that kind of bullshit and they go whoa why wasn't there any fingerprints there don't forget this is a high traffic room um prostitute bringing in lots of different men throughout the night they've some of them have got maids who do cleaning um don't forget your fingerprints don't always leave you, you touch something it doesn't automatically leave a fingerprint it depends on the oils on your hand it depends on the surface itself if if the surface itself is dusty you won't get a fingerprint on there because the dust can be removed whereas if it's if it's something great like glass and you've got oily hands perfect Do you know here you've got fingerprints on the guinness bottles uh on the clasp on the inside of a handbag on the uh salmon tin on the um can opener Joe, these are all kind of it's it's metal it's your oil is going to stay on there but everything else not a chance even with red max there were fingerprints found at the scene uh of red max uh but they were all on bottles same as with um marie cotton there was fingerprints found there but they were the policeman's fingerprints so um that could be why there's no fingerprints found at the earlier scenes because um I, not because someone farted, but um, I've waffled a lot. Sorry, I've waffled a lot today. I've really dived into this. This is, this is uh, I could talk for hours about this. I really could. Um, so anyway, yes, no. Uh, do you know what? I was just going to dive in quickly. I'm sorry, this is overrunning. Uh, the ID parade. Um, this is what I thought was interesting. So almost two years after the murder, uh, they got back all of, almost all of the people. They couldn't get back all of the witnesses. 
and like uh, Gulam, the Indian waiter, had, had gone back to India, so they couldn't get him. But they, they, all these people, they, they knew had nothing to do with it, but they were great eyewitnesses. So what they did was they, they pulled them in and they said, uh, when was it? 14th of March, 1939, between 3.25pm and they finished at 4.50pm. 13 witnesses were asked uh, to pick out Norman Stevenson, who was in, in the ID parade, and he placed himself... It has to be a minimum of eight people. Uh, and he could turn up and he could place himself in whatever section he wanted, but he has to stay exactly there. And he placed himself fifth from the right in the lineup. So all of the witnesses turned up. Uh, Mr. E- M- Eva Schladever, who was the um, who lived at 306 Euston Road. My brain is really dying now. Um, she misidentified him. She identified a man called Thomas Brown. Kaufman Schladever, her husband, who saw him leaving the flat, he identified a man called John Page. Um, as did uh, Gertrude, who was one of the ladies in the pub. She identified another guy called Thomas Brown. As mentioned, it was only Reuben Packroft and Sadie Gibber. Uh, she would remarried by that point. Um, he, Reuben, said in his ID parade that he was very definite that he'd picked out uh, this man because he'd seen him several times before, uh, as had Sadie. So that was pretty good. That Sadie even said, no, this is the man. Um, but unfortunately, Kathleen Ula, uh, she picked out a man called John Shelton. Uh, George Bakewell, who was talking to him for about 20 minutes, couldn't identify him. Uh, neither could Frederick Dobson. He spoke to him for 20 minutes, couldn't identify him either. So lots of people could not identify him, but they managed to find two uh, who conclusively said, yes, this is definitely the man. And because because enough of these eyewitness statements that they got the day of the murder and the day after the murder were identical, before people had even started talking to each other, the police knew that they were onto a winner. But obviously, trying to get people to remember a face from two years ago is almost, almost impossible. So, um, yeah, I think that's that. Well, let's do the quiz questions. Then I can go and have something to drink. Oh, I might have from one of my Guinnesses tonight. Ooh. Um, uh, okay, question number one. Um, what was Norman's middle name? It was a trick question. He didn't have one. Question number two. At what police station was the ID parade held? It was at Albany Street Police Station, uh, which is just to the side of Regent's Park, uh, where the the, the early Blackout Ripper uh, potential murders happened. Question number three. What was Norman's favourite football team? Why, hey, man. It was Newcastle. Newcastle, man. Uh, Question number four. What did Newman... What did Newman... What did Norman claim he was sacked from the hotel for doing? Easy one. It was upsetting a milk churn. Question number five. What prison was Norman released from on the day of Marie's murder? It was Wandsworth, where the Black Eye Ripper was executed. Question number six. How much did Norman steal from the gas meter? Twelve shillings. Question number seven. What village in Surrey did Norman say he went to to visit his sister? It was Merstham. Question number eight. What was the alias his lawyer used when Norman was tried at the Old Bailey? It was Robert Dixon. This caused me a lot of pain when I was researching this. And then I found out, through the research, I found out that someone had been uh, arrested and convicted for the murder of 
um, uh, French Marie. And then I went searching to find out about Robert Dixon. I couldn't find any files to do with Robert Dixon. And I was like, what that? And it took ages until I finally worked out that they'd used his alias, an alias for him at the Old Bailey, which I thought was fascinating. But it makes sense because they didn't want the jury to go, oh, I read in the paper that he's a nasty piece of work. Uh, question number nine. What detective was in charge of the murder of French Marie and others? DCI Drew. Question number ten. I think I gave this one away as a quiz question, but that's fine. You can have this one for free. Present from me. What kind of fish did Norman and Marie eat for dinner? It was salmon. So there you go, folks. That's the end of the Soho Strangler. Uh, I will be doing an omnibus edition. So if you want uh, just all the episodes uh, without the waffly bits at the end, and you can just focus on the case that's there. And I'll do I'll do some of these micro uh, episodes for the Soho Strangler week next week. The, 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 it won't be um, um, scenes and sound effects and all that. It's just going to be, we're just going to be focusing on facts. I'm going to boil it down to just the essentials. So if you want to help solve who the Soho Strangler was and bring justice to, to those lovely ladies who unfortunately tragedy befell them and, you know, um, their cases have never been solved, then uh, you can help do that. That's it, folks. That's me done. Core. I've almost finished. <laughs> Have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe and be good. And uh, thank you for supporting the show. Lots of love. Bye. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.